Thank you for standing by. All participants are in a listen-only mode. After the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star followed by the number one. This call is being recorded. If you have any objection, you may disconnect at this point. Now, I will turn the meeting over to Mr. Reeves Gerhold. Mr. Gerhold, you may now begin. Thank you very much, AJ, and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of you from around the world that are joining today's press call, where we will give a preview of what to expect at the UN Climate Talks kicking off in Bonn, Germany next week. Um, my name is Reese Gerholtz. I'm the Senior Communications Manager for the Climate Program at WRI. And for those of you that are maybe less familiar with us, uh, World Resources Institute is a global research organization working at the nexus of the environment, human well-being, and economic development. We have 700 staff working in eight global offices and many more um, around the world. Um, today we have a really strong panel of international climate experts to brief you on what to expect in Bonn and the international climate arena more broadly. Um, each of them will be on the ground in Bonn um, at the talks and engaging with delegates to advance these negotiations. Um, and I'm very pleased to be um, to introduce them now. Um, so we have David Waskow, the International Climate Director, Yamid Dagnet, uh, Senior Associate, who will speak about the Paris Rulebook, uh, Eliza Northrup, uh, an associate who will speak about the Town Hall Dialogue and expectations for strengthening national climate plans, and uh, Joe Thwaites, an associate with our finance center, um, who will give an overview of the key issues to watch related to climate finance. Um, all of our speakers today will be on the ground in Bonn, um, as will I, to coordinate with all of your media requests. Uh, and just before we kick off, I want to remind you that this call will be recorded, and this recording will be posted on WRI.org about two or three hours after the call concludes today. Um, so now I will turn the floor over to David Wasco. Thank you very much, Reese. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This year, 2018, is a pivotal year for driving forward climate action. The IPCC's report on 1.5 degrees will underscore the urgent need for that action as well as the opportunities. As will be showcased at the Global Climate Action Summit in California in September, a wide range of actors continue to press forward on tackling climate change. And we've already had important steps forward this year with the IMO decision on significantly reducing emissions from shipping. And at center stage, and likely most important this year, is the process underway to fully bring the Paris Agreement to light and make it work in very real terms. Indeed, this year's process, culminating at COP24 in December, will be the most critical moment for global political leadership on climate change since uh, the outcome in Paris in 2018. Success this year will rest on whether countries agree to finalize a robust rule book for the Paris Agreement and whether they clearly signal a readiness to enhance their national climate commitments by 2020. Pressure for a strong outcome will mount as the year progresses, with moments like the summit in California ratcheting up expectations for continued national leadership. In that context, the upcoming intercessional in Bonn is a key milestone that will set the stage for those outcomes. And two elements sit at the top of the agenda for the Bonn Climate Talks, the Paris Rulebook and the Talanoa Dialogue on Ambition. On what's often referred to as the Rulebook or the Paris Work Program, the time has come to make serious progress on forming the underlying guidelines for implementing the Paris Agreement. A robust and transparent set of rules and guidelines is crucial to maintain trust among all countries and advance climate action under the Paris framework. A critical outcome from this intercessional will be for the co-chairs to secure a mandate from parties to draft negotiating texts that will be considered later in the year. And we'll hear more from Yamid Danyet on this front in a minute. Second, the Tayanoa Dialogue will play a prominent role in Bonn where negotiators will discuss fundamental questions on climate action, serving as a springboard for greater ambition. We're now truly entering the first of the five-year cycles of action under Paris, and this is a year when countries need to step up and clearly signal their intention to enhance climate action by 2020. At this intercessional, the Talanoa Dialogue will place attention squarely on this need for enhanced action and the opportunities to seize in doing so. And we'll hear more about that from Eliza Northrup. The rule book and a commitment to greater ambition are essential to one another. 
You can't have one without the other. In essence, this is a bicycle that needs two wheels to move forward, greater ambition and a robust Paris rulebook. Clear signals that countries are ready to raise ambition by 2020 is critical in order to demonstrate that the Paris framework is in fact mobilizing the action we need. And the rulebook will provide clarity about how countries will bring forward new commitments and report on progress, providing the confidence needed by countries to make enhanced commitments. So as I noted, these go together. Other dimensions of these negotiations will be important, including attention to pre-2020 issues and the perennial and fundamental issue of finance. And we'll hear more on finance from Joe Thwaites. Finally, despite these turbulent times, the world continues to transition toward a low-carbon economy, though at a slower pace than what the science shows is needed. It's encouraging that more businesses, states, and cities are taking action, and the pressure will be on for policymakers now to step up deliver on their targets, and make clear that they will make bigger, bolder national commitments in the years ahead. Thank you, and now back to Reese. Great. Thank you very much, David. And now we'll turn the floor over to Yumid Dagnat, senior associate. Yes, thank you, and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. As David alluded to, turning the Paris Agreement into a functioning regime requires adopting the rules of the game, this is the only way to bring the visions of the Paris Agreement to reality in a trustworthy, effective, and fair manner. Ultimately, the World Book, once adopted, will be the daily guardian companion of any government officer or non-state actor involved in the Paris Agreement cycle of implementation, which means involved in the planning, the policy design, implementation, and review of the national pledges. A weak or watered-down version of the implementation guidelines will undermine efforts to bring the Paris Agreement to life, leading to lack of trust, tension among countries, and the risk to fail pulling together at the pace and scale required. On the other hand, a well-designed and robust set of rules will provide clarity to parties regarding what has been done what should be done, the opportunities to enhance cooperation, to go further faster, the confidence in what will happen if countries do not follow the rules, and assurance that support will be offered to countries who need it to fulfill their requirements, keeping the Paris spirit of solidarity clearly alive. This is why, in our view, the three most critical issues to watch for in the Paris School Book are the, the transparency framework, which is the backbone of any multilateral arrangement, the ambition mechanism called the global stocktake, which makes this regime unique, and the communication every five years of countries' intended efforts. This is because the information to be included in these communications and the way we account for these efforts, as well as the signal of progression from previous rounds of efforts, will be critically important to assess progress against the Paris Agreement goals. But where we are now, the problem is that since Paris, meaning over 28 months, limited progress has been made in the design of the Paris Rule Book, we only have about seven months left to adopt the rules as agreed back in 2015, a titanic task ahead in view of the technical complexity and political sensitivities affecting its negotiations. And let me give you just three examples of issues currently at stake in the Paris Rule Book. The first is flexibility, or the shadow concept of differentiation. Paris ha parties have to translate the universal version, vision that is on paper, which provides with a more balanced set of requirements between developed and developing countries, moving us away from the bifurcated approach, dif differentiating developing developing countries into reality. This means that parties will need to be more creative and pragmatic in, in finding ways so flexible approaches to take into account differing and evolving national circumstances, circumstances 
differing and evolving capabilities, as well as vulnerabilities while keeping sight of the need to improve data and action over time. The second challenge is obtaining a balanced package. Some issues are more major than others because some of them are simply more technically complex or very sensitive. Yet all areas, whether it's mitigation, adaptation, loss and damage, or support, will need to be perceived as progressing to the operational level at the same time. Last but not least is the linkages between the various building blocks of the Paris Full Book. Altogether, the pieces of the puzzle must make sense and provide a clear picture of what and how things need to be done to translate into effective action on the, on the ground. The BRI has done much work on mapping these linkages, and this is serving already as a tool for countries to organize themselves during the negotiation to unpack what needs to be addressed in parallel or in a sequenced manner. So what does it mean for BON exactly? Well, countries will have to triple their efforts. Keeping focused on the task as a minimum, they need to leave the session with a mandate to the co-facilitators, co-chairs, to produce a text, a negotiating text ahead of the next session, which is currently scheduled in September in Bangkok, just before COP24. Negotiations will need to demonstrate a political will, faith, good faith, and build trust among countries to really make the finishing line. And for that, maintaining the spirit of solidarity that I mentioned is going to be important. And the means of, in the means of implementation that my colleague Joe is going to talk about will remain an innocent in the room. Acknowledging efforts to be made also now, pre-2020 and post-2020, will also equally be important. Those issues will interact into each other, and we do hope that negotiators are ready for those. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Emile. Appreciate that. And now over to Eliza Northrup. <coughs> Thanks, Reese. Um, as we know, the Talanoa Dialogue is the first collective stocktake of progress towards the Paris Agreement's long-term goals. It was established because we cannot wait until the first global stocktake in 2023 to assess progress and identify how to go further. The next few years provide a critical window of opportunity. If we are serious about meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement, we must review and update the current NDCs with a view to enhancing ambition. We are essentially at the first juncture of ground-truthing the commitment we made at Paris. The dialogue provides an unprecedented space for parties and non-party stakeholders, meaning business, civil society, academia, scientists, think tanks, to come together and build consensus on what is needed, where the gaps are, and most importantly, where the opportunities are. What makes it truly unique is that it is a dialogue with a purpose and direction. The conclusions drawn from the inputs received and discussions held during the year will be provided to ministers at COP24, where the world will be watching how countries step up and signal their intention to update the ambition of their current NDCs by 2020. The dialogue includes a number of key milestones this year in the lead up to COP24. We have just, just passed the first, which uh, was submissions responding to the three core questions of the dialogue. These are where, we, where are we, where do we want to go, and how do we get there? The second milestone is fast approaching and will be a global convening taking place on Sunday, May 6th during the bond negotiation session. Parties and representatives from business, local government, civil society, academic, and think tanks will gather to have small roundtable conversations focused on each of those core questions. With only 35 people in each room, it provides an opportunity for real discussion and consensus building. 
Although this is the first global convening under the Talent Hour Dialogue, there have already been dialogues convened by cities and regions and by the International Chamber of Commerce, beginning to uncover exactly how cities, regions and business uh, can go further and how action from the national governments uh, can unlock even further ambition. The EU has also signalled signaled its intent to begin convening dialogues at the EU level. Indeed, climate ministers from seven progressive EU member states are meeting in Paris this afternoon to call for EU climate ambition in line with the Paris Agreement. We look forward to more countries following suit. In terms of what we've heard so far in the submissions received and therefore what we can expect to hear in the room next week in Bonn, We've had a total of approximately 417 submissions received uh, to date, 48 submissions uh, from parties, including party groups, so representing the views of approximately 178 countries, and we've had 369 submissions from non-party stakeholders. This was not your usual UNFCCC submission process. Um, all submissions from all types of organisations and individuals were welcomed by the COP presidencies, provided they were aimed at furthering the purpose of the dialogue. The value of such a broad and inclusive process is that we are starting to see consistent messages emerge. There is the recognition of the urgency of action with specific calls for enhanced ambition in updated NDCs, as well as enhanced support um, including finance, capacity building and technology transfer. The recognition that a lot has changed since NDCs were first developed. Countries now see it in their national interest to update their climate priorities to seize the benefits of falling costs of renewables, technological innovations and a greater understanding of the development and economic benefits of climate action. The untapped mitigation potential in key economic centres is raised across the board. Significant untapped potential in the energy sector, transport and infrastructure in particular, as well as increasing recognition of the value of nature-based solutions such as forests, restoration, oceans and coastal ecosystems. And lastly, the importance of greater collaboration. The important feedback loop between public and private action is increasingly raised in submissions and provides the key to moving forward at the scale needed, as well as greater cooperation between national and subnational action is identified as a key factor to deliver more climate action. It will require a much more integral participation of subnational actors in climate policy making and implementation moving forward. We expect these messages to continue to amplify throughout the year building a clear and consistent drumbeat for world leaders to pick up at COP24 and take forward in the years to come in the form of updated and more ambitious NDCs and strengthened implementation on the ground. Thank you very much, Eliza. And now our last speaker before we go to questions is uh, Joe Thwaites with our Finance Center. Joe. Thank you, Rhys. Um, there are four main issues on the climate finance agenda this year, scale, access, balance, and predictability. On scale, there will be much focus on the goal of mobilizing $100 billion a year by 2020. And while climate finance is increasing, there are understandable concerns about progress given political dynamics in countries such as the US. But it's important not only to look at raising the money, but at whether it's getting through to the countries that need it. And that's why improving access to funding is the second big issue. There was a breakthrough last year when the Green Climate Fund agreed a simplified approval process for low-risk, small-scale projects. But even so, the first pr proposal approved under this process still ran to 72 pages. The next important issue is balance. Uh, funding going to mitigation far outweighs that going to adaptation, around 70% to 30%, even though it is vital to support the poorest and most vulnerable countries to adapt to warming that will be unavoidable. And finally, uh, developing countries are asking for more predictability about future climate finance flows. Now, predictability is a widely recognized principle of aid effectiveness since it allows recipients to better plan and implement the climate action that is needed. However, 
Donor countries do face real limitations in the information they can provide due to their budget processes. So the challenge is to identify useful information that improves predictability while respecting donors' domestic procedures. So how can negotiators make progress? Well, there are five processes to watch this year. First, experts are currently crunching the numbers from countries' latest climate finance reporting to the UN, uh, which covers the years 2015 and 2016. And at COP24, the third biennial assessment of climate finance flows will be released. This UN report should give a good indication of progress towards the 100 billion goal, as well as extra work that may be needed. Second, the Global Environment Facility will conclude its seventh replenishment uh, this year, and in fact, um, its final replenishment meeting is this week in Stockholm. While the Green Climate Fund is likely to start its first replenishment negotiations around the end of 2018. Third, in July, the Standing Committee on Finance which is a UNFCCC body, will have its annual forum and it will focus on the climate finance architecture. Uh, this will be an important venue for the climate funds to get together and discuss how they can work together concretely to harmonize and simplify their processes for countries to access funding. Fourth, developed countries must file biennial submissions on how they will scale up finance towards the 100 billion goal. It is critical that countries submit these reports well ahead of COP24, since they can set the tone for negotiations and reassure developing countries that action is being taken to stay on track towards finance goals. And fifth, all of the above processes need to feed into a stock take on pre-2020 implementation and ambition, and a high-level ministerial dialogue on climate finance, which will both take place at COP24, as well as the Talanoa Dialogue, which Eliza has spoken about. These meetings provide an opportunity for negotiators as well as government ministers to mould the findings of the various reports and submissions on climate finance, identify key issues and commit to further action that is necessary to increase climate ambition. And while much of the focus this year will be on public climate funding, it's critical for negotiators to keep in mind the bigger picture, that public finance is a lever to shift broader investment flows which must all be aligned with climate goals in order to get on a pathway to 1.5 degrees. Great. Thank you very much, Joe. Um, that was a, we covered a lot of ground there, I would say. Um, so that's um, hopefully very helpful for all of you. Um, AJ, I think now we can go on to the Q&A session. Can you give instructions for how um, reporters can ask questions? I will. Right now, we will now begin the question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, you may press star followed by the number one. Please unmute your phone and record your name clearly when prompted. Your name is required to introduce your question. To cancel your request, you may press star followed by the number two. One moment, please, for the first question. Great. And as we uh, wait for the first questions, I just wanted to flag, uh, again, for those of you that may not have joined right on time, um, that this call is being recorded. Um, actually, the UNI advisory page we have on Debride.org promoting this call, um, we'll put the recording on that uh, probably about two or three hours um, after this call concludes. Um, so please do look for that. Um, all right, reporter, do you have any questions now? Our first question comes from Marlo. Marlo, your line is now open. Much uh, thanks for organizing this. Um, I have two questions, if I may. One for Eliza, one for Joe. Um, Eliza, you uh, described the Talanoa dialogue as the first global stock take, um, but I'm a little confused because I thought you went on to say that the first <clears throat> global stock take under the Paris Agreement was in 2023. So, am I correct in saying that the Talanoa dialogue has no kind of formal standing under the structure of the Paris Agreement? And if that's true, um, what is it? formal status, as it were. Thank you so much for that uh, question. Uh, it's an excellent one. Um, so to clarify what I said, so we've got the, the global stock take that is referred to and established under Article 14 of the Paris Agreement. Um, that first global stock take uh, will take place in 2023. Um, but at the time of negotiating the Paris Agreement, we didn't expect for it to come in as rapidly as it did. Um, so in the... Uh, the COP decision accompanying the agreement, we agreed to convene this dialogue in 2018 as the first stock-taking exercise, if you like, um, 
taking that meaning in, in the sense of really assessing uh, where we are and assessing how we can go further um, this year um, because of the urgency of stepping up action and not being able to wait until 2023. So it does have a formal standing, it's just not, um, it is a, a different exercise that is taking place this year than what we can expect and what we're starting to build out the modalities for um, in 2023 and beyond. And just a little a quick follow-up, in terms of, of timing or procedure, what is the end point of the Telenoa Dialogue? So the end point will be COP24. Um, there is going to be a high-level component of COP24, um, which will uh, involve ministers and, uh, as I mentioned, uh, will uh, include the conclusions and sort of key messages that have been drawn from the process that has taken place this year. So COP24, we will have the, the outcome uh, of the Talanoa Dialogue. Great, thank you. And my question for Joe um, concerns um, the, uh, if I think I'm correct in referring it to, is a sort of so-called Article 9.5 issue, that is to say um, the, the disagreement that kind of hung up the closing of the uh, plenary, the APA plenary at COP23, uh, which, uh, as I understood it, had to do with a concern particularly uh, by the Africa group, but uh, um, developing countries in general about a lack of trans transparency on the part of developed countries in terms of their finance commitments. I just wondered, um, are we going to have that same, to what extent was that issue dealt with or resolved uh, at the end of COP23, and is that something that we're going to see pop up again uh, in Bonn and perhaps beyond? Sure. Uh, thanks. That's a great question. Um, uh, yeah, you're right. That that was a, a big issue at COP23. Um, and again, this this is about predictability. So, so the the remarks I made in in, in my initial intervention um, uh, around that uh, stand. And so, you know, it is an important um, principle of of broader aid effectiveness as well as, as climate finance effectiveness. Um, and, uh, and so the challenge is, is about how do you, how do you identify uh, feasible information that's going to be, that's going to be useful to, to enhance that predictability for, for developing countries, um, while also respecting the different and, um, uh, and varying national budgetary processes of, of the donors. Um, and, um, Yes, at COP23 countries, um, uh, the big push was to actually give more time to discuss this issue because they recognized that it wasn't going to get done uh, just at the COPs. And what they did was they, um, they gave it to the subsidiary body for implementation, which is one of the two bodies that meets, um, well, as well as the APA, that will meet in Bonn this week. So they've, they've essentially given another two weeks of negotiating time. So we absolutely expect this to be um, a, a big issue, and we hope to see constructive engagement um, around what will be the, the, the most effective approach um, to identifying the, the information that developed countries uh, and other parties that provide finance uh, should be reporting under the Paris Agreement. Um, and so, so, yeah, I absolutely expect that, that we'll see this um, uh, as the source of discussions, but I, I hope that we can see uh, quite constructive engagement on, on specific proposals. And, and we've seen that from a number of parties that have sort of talked about um, concretely what, uh, what they think the, the kind of information that should be, um, that should be part of these um, communications should be. If I could just follow up briefly, um, and then I will cease and desist. Um, could you describe the nature of, of the resistance uh, on the part of, of uh, developed uh, countries in terms of um, the the ask on the part of, of the developing countries? What what is um, what's the problem here? I'm, I'm not sure it's resistance. I think it's just a, um, a challenge of that the, 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 the pretty much every donor country has to um, has to get its budgets through through its parliament, its congress, or, or whatever. And so, so there's a need to respect domestic legislative processes. Um, and depending on the country, some countries, um, usually the ones where there are sort of uh, there's less separation of power between the executive and the legislative branches, they, they can often uh, make longer-term predictions. They can sort of say, well, you know, um, our government's going to be in office for five years, and if we, um, 
you know, there's going to be a bigger problem than, than just uh, appropriating climate finance if, if, the, um, uh, if we can't pass the budget. So, they, so some countries can, can uh, talk more, more broadly and for, for, for longer, longer time periods. And then there are other countries, um, and, and, you know, that includes the U.S., but, but some others as well, that, um, that have to pass a, new, a, a budget every single year and that, that it can, can change quite, quite significantly from year to year. Um, and so I think that's the, the, the challenge is, is how do you uh, design the, the guidelines in a way that, um, that allow countries to provide as much information as possible um, while respecting those, those variations and, and the, the, all, the, all the different quirks of, of national budget uh, processes. And so, you know, the thing we've been looking at is, is can, you, can you have a sort of sliding scale? Can you have some core information that every donor should, should be able to, have, to come up with? Um, and, then, and then additional stuff as is available. And that's kind of how the, um, the mandate under Article 9.5 in the Paris Agreement was written. It talks about um, information as applicable, as available. Um, it talks about it being indicative. So I think there is, the, you know, I think this can be resolved. It's, 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 it's just about, um, you know, figuring out what's, what's going to be really useful information for developing countries. Um, and then, and then how, do you, how do you make sure that that, that can align with, um, with all the, 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 the quirks of, of uh, different donor countries' budget processes? Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Marlo. Up to our next question. Our next question comes from Alistair. Alistair, your line is now open. Great. Thanks very much for doing this. Um, I guess this is probably for David. Um, it took, didn't it take four years to work out the Marrakesh Accords for the Kyoto Protocol, and this, this process seems to be a lot more complicated for the Paris Agreement. What are the risks that we won't get to a, a rule book this year or does it really matter since, uh, you know, the rules are for much longer? And what would happen if, they, if this does fall short of a full rule book this year? Thank you. Well, I, I, I do think, although it's a complicated task, I, I do think it's possible um, and quite important, in fact, to work through the um, fundamental issues, the foundations, essentially, for the rule book this year. Um, there may be some details that um, need to be further elaborated going forward after this year, but setting in place the foundation now um, is absolutely essential. Um, it, it's worth noting, and I think Yamid alluded to this, that um, there are some issues that are, that are less mature perhaps than others. Um, for example, the market mechanisms um, is an area where um, there's still quite a lot of detail work that needs to be done, but even even there, um, there's an essential framework that can be set, um, a sort of core framework that can be set in place this year, so that um, um, so that the the, the basic um, outlines, the basic contours, um, and the basic foundation of the rulebook are there. That, that's quite important now, um, in part because of the relationship to ambition and the need to um, create confidence uh, among parties that uh, there's clarity on uh, how NDCs will be communicated, on how they will be tracked, how they will be reported. All of that is quite uh, important so that they um, – uh, feel that the ground is laid for enhancing NDCs going toward 2020. Um, so that's 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 why the time frame in part matters so much, but also simply because um, across the board there's a um, it, it, it's critical to to make sure that um, that the agreement is knit together and that as as I said earlier that it really comes to life and that um, it's truly in motion. So, and I think all that that I laid out is doable. I think, um, uh, as I said, there may be some some detail work to do later, but this year really is is the crunch time. And honestly, this this particular intersessional is crunch time as well in terms of making sure that there's a mandate for the co-chairs to develop a a text that that can be um, really the basis for the work later in the year. And you may want to add to what I've said. Yes, I would just say, Alistair, that you know, in, uh, contrary to uh, the Marrakesh Accords, 
Uh, countries are not starting from scratch. They're starting with 20 years of experience, um, you know, including on the, on the market. Of course, we are in a different setting where we do have different types of uh, commitments coming into play and not just, you know, the same kind of economy-wide target for developed countries. So as David said, there are uh, a couple of issues that are going to be more technically complex. However, you know, if countries are really negotiators are really uh, a task um, and, and, and focus, they really can make it. Uh, we do have a number, a lot of pages of documents in formal notes at the moment that can be turned into a more streamlined uh, set of text that could highlight more clearly the options uh, that ministers will have to agree upon and um, to try to really uh, consolidate uh, you know, a package, a foundational package that can uh, be supported with you know, more details afterwards. But again, uh, it's very important uh, that for the credibility of the regime itself uh, that we land uh, something by the end of this year. Great, thank you. Thanks. And I'd like to remind people, uh, you can press star one to get into queue if you have additional questions. Um, we can go on to the next question, please. Our next question comes from Suzanne. Suzanne, your line is now open. Yes, hello, and thank you. I have a question for Eliza. Uh, as far as I understood the Telenor dialogue, it's, um, the idea is that countries most affected by climate change make others, uh, other countries understand why there's a sense of urgency, <clears throat> and so uh, ambition should, could be accelerated. So do you think this, this will work because we have so many other economic issues and interests in the game that um, um, I, I doubt a little bit whether the Telenor-like uh, dialogue can really enhance ambition. So, and then uh, one question to whom it may concern, is there already a, a text of the Paris Rural Book that one could read to have an idea what it's all about? That's it. <clears throat> Great, thanks. Uh, I think the first question is for you, Eliza. Yeah, um, thank you for that question. That was, that was good, and I think this is always um, a challenge with these processes. I think the the value, I mean, I mean, the dialogue is really about bringing everyone together. There will certainly be a lot of space for those um, affected by climate change to share their stories, to emphasize the need for enhanced action, and, and to provide um, opportunities um, to do so, um, but it, it's a space for everyone, um, and I think that's what we've seen through the submission so far. It is very solutions oriented, um, really identifying what has changed in the last couple of years that can be taken up um, to increase ambition. As I mentioned, the energy sector, the transport sector, mm -hmm. sort of innovations in those spaces are really being highlighted um, across the board by both parties. Um, developed parties, developing parties, um, as well as uh, civil society. And I think the potential for the Talanoa Dialogue to result in enhanced ambition is really building the political pressure this year that there is consensus around not only the need to do more, and by consensus I mean across the board from all countries um, in all stages of sort of vulnerability, um, building the case that there is um, the urgency to do more, but that there are solutions and that there are solutions that can be taken up by everyone and brought to scale. Um, and building that expectation ahead of COP24 um, and really expecting um, for the ministers at COP24 to signal how they are going to take these outcomes forward, um, signaling their intent to update their NDC and enhance uh, their ambition by 2020, to initiate national dialogues, um, to unearth uh, further opportunities at the national level. I think this is um, how we're going to see the Talanoa Dialogue um, bring about change and enhance ambition is really this political pressure building throughout this year and the expectation um, on ministers at COP24. Okay, thank you. And uh, you need, uh, would you like to chime in about the second question um, in regards to some text being available? Yes. Um, yes, so can you just repeat it more clearly the question about the text? Yes. Do you, 
your question is it that you know we we are expecting a text by the end of this session or can you just reframe mm -hmm. yes uh i was trying to say that uh if they, there's a text already in negotiation for sure but is it already known or is it open to the public or do does anyone know any version of the state of of the discussion Okay, so thank you for your question. So what is currently on the table are informal, uh, informal uh, notes uh, produced mm -hmm. by co-chairs based on the conversation that happened among negotiators so far. This is not what is called a negotiating text uh, that is supposed to be uh, in, uh, written in a more legal uh, language. Mm -hmm. So what we do have is, uh, is a set of... Uh, Uh, views and it, it reflects some views and positions from some uh, countries or group of countries and uh, sometimes this text is very big with a lot of redundancies and duplication and therefore you know what needs to happen is to streamline what we currently have so that we see more clearly the different options to tackle each critical issue um, and, and sometimes some of those questions can be resolved and, and, and also turn this into a, a more legal language. So, for example, uh, be more precise regarding what provision needs to be a shall, needs to be uh, obligatory, and those that have a more voluntary nature. Um, so, so I think this exercise needs to be, uh, needs to be done. And therefore, what we expect is by the end of the session that uh, uh, the co-chairs and co-facilitators for each building block will be given the mandate uh, to, to produce a text. It's, un it's unlikely, unfortunately, that because of the scale of the issues and, and the complexity of the task, that we, we end up with a negotiating text by the end of this session, but at least amended to produce a text so that negotiators, when they meet again uh, in September in Bangkok, they come uh, ready uh, to, to negotiate further a text that would have been put on the table. So this is where we are. I hope it's clear. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next question, Aja. Yeah. Our next question comes from Marianne. Marianne, your line is now open. Hello, thank you so much for doing this this morning. I'm uh, Marianne LaBelle from Inside Climate News. I wondered if uh, one or more of you could address what is the role that the United States has been playing in this uh, run-up uh, to, to Bonn and uh, beyond uh, on all of the issues, the rule book, the Italian dialogue, um, everything you've talked about, what do you, what role have you seen and do you see the United States playing? Um, Thank you. Uh, Go ahead, David. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think, you know, at a negotiator level, the U.S. has continued to engage um, in the way they have in the past. The uh, co-facilitator of the Transparency Working Group, the Working Group on Article 13 Issues, is a, a U.S. negotiator um, who's working together with his counterpart, his co-facilitator counterpart from China, um, and those negotiations have continued um, to move forward, uh, certainly at, at, at the COP um, last year, and I think the expectation is that that um, will continue to be the case um, this year, and um, the U.S. has, I, I think it's fair to say, for the most part, queued to um, the priorities that it's had in the past. Those include especially, I think, transparency and ensuring that there's a common framework um, across countries. Um, I, I think, at, uh, well, it's fair to say that that all um, should be considered in the context of the fact that President Trump has made very clear that um, he intends to withdraw from the agreement. Um, and that's already been communicated in an, uh, uh, an informal sense to the UNFCCC. 
Um, so that colors and I think sets the context for whatever it is that the United States might be doing, and, and we just have to bear that in mind. And there's no sign, and um, there's no sign at this point that um, President Trump is uh, considering uh, anything other than that course of action to withdraw from the agreement. Um, I'll turn to Eliza. I think last I had seen, the U.S. had not submitted um, anything to the Town Noah Dialogue, but um, just want to check with Eliza on that. Um, but I do expect that they will be among the parties that uh, are participants in the process on May 6th during the intercessional. Uh, yes, just to come in briefly, no, the, the United States has not... Um, uh, provided a submission to the Talanoa Dialogue um, yet. Uh, but and, and, I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt. It, uh, how, how many others have not? Uh, or, or I don't have the... Oh, there's a round, and, and I say this with the caveat that this is a rolling basis. We're seeing new submissions every day. Just last night um, we saw uh, the submission from the um, African group, um, but so far there's... The submissions at the moment represent around 178 parties, um, so you know about up to 20, uh, less than 20, um, haven't yet put in a submission. But so the U.S. submissions is are open all year. Sorry. The U.S. is among about yes. 20 that have it. Are any of those 20 as large a contributor uh, to global admissions as? As the U.S., or are there any of the other large countries among those 20 that have not submitted? Um, China uh, put in a, a fairly comprehensive submission. We have not yet seen a submission from India. Um, and the EU uh, has also put in a submission. So Thank India is probably the, the largest emitters. Uh, we're still waiting. Canada? As Canada as well? Uh, that I will need to double check the group submissions. I don't... Let me double check. Um, there was a couple of group submissions not by the traditional negotiating blocks. Um, Perhaps we can circle back to that uh, momentarily yeah. and let Eliza look at some things. Um, Yumi, do you want to chime in as well? Yes, very quickly. I think the point is that we will see the U.S. engage uh, much more in the Paris rulebook because they would like to keep the door open to come back eventually so to make sure, for example, that there's no bifurcation and we keep that spirit of a universal uh, package uh, rather than you know, two sets of requirements for developing developing countries. So they will push for that. While on the mm -hmm. other hand, on the ambition based on where we are, they would have... Uh, they would be more quiet. Uh, they would not be as, uh, you know, for you know, proactive as all the countries. So they will be. They, they, they won't be able to be compared to all the countries on the ambition and therefore Talanoa front. Right, right. Is there any concern about the fact that the U.S. Um, the the whole foreign policy team is is in flux? right now. But does that affect this at, at this negotiation level? Perhaps not. Um, this is David. I, I think um, that the, um, the negotiating team um, is intact, and um, although it's quite a bit smaller than it had been previously, um, there is still a core negotiating team. And um, at this stage, at least, the politics around the State Department hasn't um, unduly affected their ability to carry forward with the, I guess you could call it the traditional U.S. negotiating objectives. Um, I do just want to add that, um, you know, while those negotiators continued, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the overlay for all of this is President Trump's um, intention to withdraw from the agreement. And I, I, I don't think we should be um, dissuaded at all from seeing that as the central orientation of this president and um, ultimately this administration toward the agreement. Right, right. Well, thank you very uh, much. 
I was just going to come back very quickly on the Canada question. No, Canada has not yet put in a submission, um, nor has Brazil, another major emitter. Okay. Uh, um, and have you heard any word uh, of whether um, these countries all do plan to, including the U.S., plan to make submissions? No, we haven't, but they've got the rest of the, the year up until COP24. Got it. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Marianne. Go on to the next question, please. Our next question comes from Bernard. Bernard, your line is now open. Uh, thank you. This is Bernard Petter from uh, Target Zeitung in Berlin. Um, my question goes to, uh, to Yamid and also maybe to David concerning the, ru the rule book and the rules for the rule book. Um, I, I was wondering um, if there's anything like uh, differentiation or anything like the CBDR we've seen over the last years, actually, in, in the negotiations in the rule book. So uh, will we see the same rules applying uh, to everyone in terms of transparency or MRV, or will we see a differentiation there? What, what's, the, what's the picture? Thank you for that question. I would pass that to you, me. Yes, thank you for the question. Um, at the moment, uh, the, the Paris Agreement is calling for you know, all countries uh, to engage in improving their data over time uh, while building flexibility for those countries that need it. Uh, this means that uh, you know, this language has been carefully negotiated so that we hopefully end up with one set of rules uh, for everyone, uh, a common set of rules that, however, uh, provides uh, opportunities for uh, developing countries uh, who, who do not have the means to fulfill some requirements to say so, to justify, for example, you know, why they were not in a position to provide some data and to, uh, and to get um, some, uh, some potential support uh, facilitations uh, to, to, to fulfill with their requirements. Um, and, and, and that will be subject to scrutiny anyway. Um, so, so I think there's, uh, what the BRI has been doing is to identify different ways to, to bring flexibility. Um, so uh, we, we, we do have you know, the scope of the, the extent uh, of information to be provided, uh, the provision of an improvement plan if a country uh, still have uh, a way to go to produce uh, very uh, accurate data. Uh, so there's uh, a few uh, possibilities uh, to, to provide flexibility for countries who need it uh, without jeopardizing that, uh, that common journey uh, to improve data and build trust over time. And do you, I'm sorry, a uh, follow-up maybe. Do you see any kind of political uh, uh, attempt to, to hide behind that from, from countries that um, like, for example, China, India have done in, in the past uh, to hide behind their status uh, and say we are not going to apply or we're not going to play by the same rules as we as we've seen for long, long years in the in the negotiations. Of course, there's going to be tactics um, um, played um, until you know the package, the whole package is agreed. Some some countries may have a hard line because they would like to see something else in the package. Uh, in the Paris rule book uh, considered. So, for example, more efforts on how, um, you know, the, to have more um, uh, better rules, you know, for developed countries also on how they can mobilize uh, support, you know, in, in, in the years to come and not just focusing on, on mitigation and adaptation. So some countries play tactics uh, in, in, in pushing back on, on some of the uh, agreed approach uh, but I insist that it's, it's mainly tactics, and we need to make sure that uh, we, we, we are proposing solutions and, and options moving forward on, on, the different, uh, uh, on the different building blocks, uh, which are all interlinked um, to, to, to really provide comfort to all countries that uh, what is important for them is being addressed and can be made operational. I think on the, in, in the case of transparency, 
uh, as we speak in, in, in Berlin, uh, there's a, the GEF is organizing a coordinating uh, process because it's been uh, uh, working over the past few years since Paris to establish uh, a fund to help countries uh, ramp up uh, their abilities uh, to produce better data uh, and to report better on their efforts and track uh, their the implementation of their NDCs. Um, so I'm just saying that because capacity building is increasing, is also very important to make sure that uh, countries like India uh, or the emerging countries are also playing a more constructive role. If they feel that they can have the support they need uh, to, to meet those uh, requirements, that's also going to be uh, that, that's going to help. Right. And I think uh, we're getting close to time here, but I think we can squeeze in one last question if there is one. Operator? We have one last question in the queue, and it comes from Chris. Chris, the line is now open. Yes, hello. Uh, Chris Schrader here from Risk Supporter in Germany. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I have a question for Eliza. Um, when, when the Talanoa concept was introduced at the Bonn COP, it was this Polynesian cultural technique that uh, involved sitting together on eye level, um, telling each other stories, listening, building trust. And uh, I was on two teleconferences with Ambassador Khan, who reinforced that, that it's important to tell stories and so on. And then I look at the submissions, there is nothing of that left. Um, I mean, Fiji itself uploaded a paper that starts with a data table and some others uploaded research papers. So what happened to the storytelling aspect? Thank you. Um, the storytelling aspect is still very much at the center of the Talanoa Dialogue and the reason why the um, conversations that will be held in Bonn are held with only 35 people in small rooms at a round table so everyone uh, is on the same level and is able to communicate and have time to speak, um, which is very different to sort of past uh, workshops or events. Um, so the dialogue is still um, and will be carried out very much in the Talanoa spirit. Um, it is the Talanoa spirit that has meant that the submissions uh, have been called for by um, such a, a diverse and broad uh, range of stakeholders, as I mentioned. So nothing has, has changed or shifted from that. I think the submissions that you see online are stories of a sort. They are still inputs that come from different organizations sharing their view of, of where we are and, and how, uh, where we need to go and how do we get there. Um, they are still stories um, told in different ways, um, but um, they are, they're still stories that are important to the overall discussion of how to move forward. I think we can expect um, just by virtue of the in-person nature of the discussion that will take place in Sunday, for that to have more of that traditional sort of storytelling flavor. Um, but nothing has, has changed the Talanoa Dialogue this year. is still very much carried out um, in the Talanoa Dialogue spirit, and I, I think we can see that um, throughout the whole process. And if I can follow up, how can I find out how this session actually went? I mean, so there's going to be yeah, um, great question. So there's going to be a number. I cannot be in the room. Sorry, sorry. As a journalist, uh, yeah. I cannot be in the room. Yes. Um, so there's going to be a number of um, uh, report back sessions, um, mainly on Tuesday, uh, following the Sunday session. So that will be Tuesday the eighth of May, uh, which will uh, be open to everyone. Uh, there will be a report back from the presidencies of what occurred. Um, on Sunday, um, there will also be a, sort of a, a written report back that will be pulled together by the Secretariat um, and guided by the Fijian representatives that are facilitating each of those sessions on the Sunday uh, that will be released um, following the May session in, in the next couple of you know, week or so following the May session. So there will be a number of different um, report backs and opportunities uh, for everyone to, to hear what was said in the room. No, 
um, as well as the fact that the discussions in the room, although there's only 35 people, it is not a Chatham House discussion, and those in the room are obviously free to share what they heard and to, and to communicate that um, to other stakeholders. Uh, my understanding is why they wanted to keep those rooms small is to really maintain the spirit of Talanoa um, and make sure that it had a, a different flavour to the, the broader UNFCCC meetings where there's a lot of people in the room. Um, but it is certainly not intended to be a closed-door private meeting. Okay, thank you. And I think we will actually need to um, end the call now. Um, it's a great, great conversation. I appreciate all of the participation. Um, if there are more of you that are in the queue and we have more questions or you'd like to just reach out generally, um, please, uh, you have my email address. This is Reese Gerholtz, and I'd be happy to get you in touch with an expert and throughout the rest of this week and, of course, over the course of the negotiations where all of us will be on the ground. Uh, and, again, we will have a recording of this available. Uh, it should be posted on the media advisory page in about three hours from now. But thank you all for your time, and we will be in touch. All right. Take care. That concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.